Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, a lifelong homeschooling parent, author, and president of Chula Vista Christian University, a four-year university that centers on mentor-driven, Bible-based, debt-free higher education. Visit us at cvcu.us to see how we are taking back education for the next generation. If you're new to the show, be sure to scroll back on my podcast for some tips on breaking free from the toxic traits of traditional education and establishing habits that will reset your family and your organizational culture. Pastors, if you'd like to know more about how you can play a vital role in rescuing the outsourced generation, go to academicrescuemission.com and click the Start an Academy tab. We can have your campus running in four weeks anywhere in the United States. Parents, we have three levels of support for you. Our annual conference, our church-based Socratic classes, and our mentor-driven debt-free college degree programs. Again, go to cvcu.us to learn more. Well, I am very excited about our show this week. We have on the show an author and attorney whose practice involves municipal law, employment discrimination, civil rights, environmental law, educational policy, federal firearms law. He's very busy. He's appeared in hundreds of state and federal cases and has been nominated every year since 2017 by his legal peers as a Michigan super lawyer in municipal law, which is apparently an honor reserved to the top 5% of legal professionals. He's married to Elizabeth Morgan and together they have Dr. Elizabeth Morgan and together they have five children all grown three of which were adopted from Siberia. And he's also a Regent University alum, just like me, which is very exciting. Please join me in welcoming attorney Carrie Morgan. Carrie, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, we met at an education summit in Virginia, and as I told you before the show, I have so many pages of notes from your speech, and every white paper I collected from you is now covered with uh, highlights, so I'm really excited for our listeners to learn more about you and your tremendous vision for sociocultural change. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what got you started in law, faith testimony, anything along that line? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So. I um, got interested in law probably when I was in college and wanted to serve people, help people, and it seemed like the law was a good way to do that. I think I also recognized that behind many decisions hidden back there was the, the secret hand of law, sort of forcing or making decisions that uh, appeared to be already set in stone for uh, the control of, of people and that sort of thing. So that got me into it. And then reading through the Bible, I began to ask, uh, what does God really say about law? Uh, and what does he say about civil government? And of course, what does he say about unalienable rights? And uh, made that my focus for, for several years. So uh, led to where I am today, for better or for worse, and uh, but that's sort of the origins, a real interest in God's view of these of these matters as described in His 
word. Phenomenal. Well, we're going to talk about some of those papers um, and some of the really powerful highlights and visions from those papers. Tell us a little bit about your work with the Longing Institute and what the kind of formation of the Institute, what it influences. Yeah, uh, the Longing Institute is an acronym for L-O-N-A-N-G, Law of Nature and of Nature's God. That's a term that's in the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration says that the United States as a nation has a right under this law and pursuant to this law to exist on the face of the earth on equal footing with all other nations. And it also contains various legal propositions um, about the elements of that law, um, its origin, uh, and some of its key components such as equality, uh, unalienable rights, uh, government by consent, the right to alter, the right to abolish civil government. But this um, law of nature and nature's God is sort of the neglected um, stepchild, so to speak, of the American Revolution. And the Loneng Institute is dedicated to uh, reviving the law of nature and nature's God and making it not merely an academic pursuit, but something that's actual, real, and concrete, and uh, describing and evaluating its effects on day-to-day uh, law and uh, legal precedent. Um, the Loaning Institute was actually started by a fellow attorney and Regent alumni, Jerry Thompson. Um, and uh, I had my own um, website called Revive the Republic, which uh, merged with uh, Mr. Thompson's uh, website. Uh, it has quite a few of the historical works and references that are very important um, for research also on there, a lot of the English common law. So that's a, a thumbnail sketch, but the, the site is dedicated to trying to recover and help people understand the critical nature of the law of nature uh, and of nature's God, that is the laws of God laid down at the creation, binding uh, all nations over the globe throughout all ages. And uh, the reflection of that raw law also in the in the written uh, scriptures. So powerful. We talk a lot on the show about the Romans 120 model, that God's nature is evidenced in what he's created. That includes both human biology and in the systems that we see around us, everything from seed time to harvest to everything that is established to speak of his nature. And I think you have done such a powerful job of illustrating that concept, not only through the Institute, but also through some of the things that you've written. I know in one of the papers that really stood out to me, the tyranny of compulsory education, you you said you asked, which is our, our model, Socratic model, but you asked so many powerful questions like looking at the macro view of compulsory education. You asked, are compulsory education laws sinful? Are they tyrannical? Are they sinful because that they usurp God's authority over the human mind? Are they tyrannical because such laws use coercion and force to compel attendance, mandate curriculum, license teachers and finance it all? 
I think that macro view question is so powerful and just kind of as a starting point, how would you how would you frame that conversation as parents are listening in and thinking about the biblical worldview? Obviously, we talk on the show a lot about the biblical worldview. We've had uh, Novak on the show. We've had Dr. Ray on the show. We've had many people who understand the 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 underlying underpinnings of the the biblical worldview in education that it's nowhere in the Bible that God has commissioned the government, the state to educate our children, even the church to educate our children. Uh, but talk about maybe the framework of that paper, the tyranny of compulsory education. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so I think the modern religious discussion uh, today about public schools and education is a fight over curriculum. And there's this sense that, at least I've read that you know, everything was fine until the 60s when, uh, you know, the, the Bible was kicked out of the public school. Uh, and then everything began to go go downhill. Um, and I think that's fundamentally a, uh, though, though accurate, I think it's really not the right position or the right argument. Uh, the question is whether or not... Um, the, you know, the raising or the teaching of ideas should be propped up by the sword, by the use mm. of force and coercion. And in the paper, I point out that, you know, enforcement of compulsory attendance laws is is a, is a misdemeanor mm. in uh, several states and certainly under most every local city and township uh, and or ju local jurisdiction, it's a, it's a, uh, civil infraction or it's a, a fine, something like this. And so the entire system is built on force and coercion. And we ask a more fundamental question as to what does God have uh, or say about the use of coercion and force to promote ideas um, or to compel children to be subject to state approved ideas, government approved ideas, which we, we, we popularly call the curriculum. Uh, and really, we find that uh, there's really no basis uh, for this, that God alone is judge of the mind, and parents are accountable to God for the education of their own children. And they have to answer to him for what's placed in the child's mind, and, or at least what the child is exposed to during their season of infancy and youth. And this is really their responsibility. So we try to, again, shift away from good content, bad content, good curriculum, bad curriculum, good math, bad math, um, you know, sex education, no sex education. These are all what continually churns uh, for activity in the, in the system. And I think we think we're, we're winning when we get a uh, bad curriculum out and good curriculum in, but I go so far to even say that if, every public school turned around tomorrow and said, you know, we're going to teach nothing but the Bible and Jesus Christ, um, you know, born, uh, crucified and resurrected. Uh, still, I would object to all of that because who is the state to put the sword behind the teaching of any idea? And God's, uh, you know, has set the structure of the system up so that he's given this duty to the family. And that's why education is, by definition, a decentralized proposition. So that's so, what we would do. We would we would switch from curriculum and focus on 
curriculum to control and authority. So incredibly powerful. Thank you for that. Yeah, we talk a lot about the uh, the who's teaching the children and what are the children being taught piece, uh, Plato's admonition to every civilization. But but to think about the the power the power behind it, the force behind it, the 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 legalization of uh, we must do the teaching is a, a really powerful construct there. Well, Carrie, in one of your papers, you talk about the unconstitutional creation of the Department of Education in 1867 and how this creation completely ignored constitutional historical limitations of federal jurisdiction over education. We've had Kevin Novak on the show, and he talked about just the completely unbiblical creation of an entity that would govern our family's educational process. And you make a bold call, which I love. It resonated with me. It's something actually after I graduated from Regent, I wrote my first book and I talked about FERPA, the antiquated law that was completely unbiblical, severing the rights of parents to know anything about their their students and talked about all the suicides and all the things that had come as a result of that. But you called in the paper that just warmed my heart, the dissolution. You called for the dissolution of the Federal Department of Education. Um, so let's talk about that and how you talk about three specific ways that abolition would uh, positively affect our culture. Yeah, so I um, actually, you mentioned Regent. Uh, my master's thesis at Regent was on the Federal Department of Education. And you may remember back in that time, um, President Ronald Reagan said, uh, if you elect me, I'll abolish the Department of Education. So I wrote my uh, thesis on that, and we studied the entire history of federal involvement in education, beginning with the Constitutional Convention and then through the various Congresses, uh, and finally up and through the Department of Education, started by uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, as a formal cabinet-level department. Uh, and then, as each president after Carter came and after Reagan came, they all proclaimed themselves the education president, the real education president, the real, real education mm -hmm. president. And they would use this for marketing and vote-getting um, because people want education to be improved. But, of course, the when the federal government or when government gets involved in education, uh, exclusively and has the authority to exclude parents. Yeah, uh, you end up with, um, you know, education like on an Indian reservation where it's completely controlled by the government and all other uh, domestic influences is excluded. But um, a part of that actually thesis went into a book I wrote called "Real Choice, Real Freedom in American Education." available on Amazon and uh, it's published by University Press of America where I analyze the entire history of the early Bureau of Education uh, originally justified as an exercise of Congress's census power uh, and then an expansion of that during the 50s with the uh, race to space with the Russians and finally the federal government getting involved in education. And I think it's important, uh, you mentioned some of the the problems, you know, Joseph Califano, who was then the uh, director or the secretary of HUD uh, or HEW, Health, Education and Welfare at the time, uh, an advisor to President Carter said, don't, don't spin off uh, education out of my department and create a new department. He warned that federal control of curriculum 
translated into federal control of ideas and the use of money to bribe essentially school districts to conform their curriculums to that of the federal government uh, if they wanted to get the money was a huge danger and threat mm -hmm. to even the state's, you know, inappropriate control of education. And so, you know, by calling for the actual dissolution, uh, I think there's several benefits. First, anytime you can reduce the size and power of the national government and have it mm, returned in some measure to that which the framers originally contemplated, as there was no such involvement in education essentially prior to uh, the 1860s um, or 1850s, uh, then you're you're always that much farther ahead. You're not yes. having to fight bureaucrats in Washington. Right. Um, now you only have to fight bureaucrats in your state capital and in your local school board. Um, but you got to start somewhere. I think that it's also important that. Um, you know, the natural uh, historic authority of overeducation falls to the family, as we've stated. And, um, you know, a mother or father shouldn't have to get the permission and shouldn't have the interference. I am here from the government. I'm here to help you. Shouldn't have the interference or the be tempted by being bribed with its own tax money to change its educational format curriculum days of attendance, whatever they want uh, to, uh, to, in order to get some of that money back that's been, you know, taken from them to educate their neighbor's children. Um, so these are, there's some advantages uh, that has to do with national power and reducing it. Others have to do with, uh, you know, a more honest interpretation of the Constitution. And, um, and then, of course, the returning of uh, the power and authority of of their own children, their education, their upbringing, uh, their medical care and attention uh, to the parents where God has placed it um, and pulling it back from the usurpers. Yes, so powerful. That's really, that's kind of the sum of another quote I wanted to read from How Your Family Can Change the World in Seven Days, one of your other white papers I picked up and noted all over. You said American civil governments, both state and federal, have effectively destroyed the vision of the family, its meaning and its purpose, and really taking control in all those arenas you just listed. And then you asked, you said the question then becomes, what can the average American family do about this? What can your family do about this? Assuming you see the need and we see a lot of parents right now who see the need, they feel the fear, but they see the need and they want to step in. Can you summarize a little bit about what the family can do to change the world? Uh, sure. <laughs> well, I kind of wrote that paper as a, you know, quick, quick, uh, Blitzkrieg, so to speak, uh, for the <laughs> yeah. family. Yeah. I think homeschoolers being largely historically motivated from religious, uh, you know, desire to see their children got a good godly education. They think, well, now that I've, you know, recovered education of my children, all is well. But it's actually only just the beginning. Mm. Um, I think the family has to realize that it was given not only authority over the home and over its children and over their education and over their medical care, um, but over the religious uh, education of their own children. And that has been in many ways simply 
not by a law, not by compulsion, but by simple inattention thrown upon the local church, the local youth group. Uh, so parents, you know, their views are, well, the, the, that's being taken care of by somebody else when really it's their responsibility. And the same with, um, you know, their own religious devotion to God. They, I think, have confused uh, church attendance, um, uh, regular attendance with uh, actually spiritual growth and uh, also thinking through and renewing their own minds uh, as we're uh, obligated to do to tear down every vain thought that mm. sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And that's an extremely broad, broad uh, knowledge that he has. Um, and I think people want to also regain control of their, of their employment. They, they want to either be self-employed or they want to, you know, work with employers that appreciate them and not try to control them. Um, uh, you know, taking dominion is given to the family and uh, for better, or for worse, uh, it's been somewhat usurped by the corporation, by the employer. Um, uh, just like the church has done the same and the school has done the same. And so it really, parents, I think, and family, mother and father, they, if they can reacquire a, their vision, their purpose by, you know, really taking Genesis 1 seriously and as restated to Adam and, and restated to Noah about their authority, um, and then seeing that these other institutions are not, um, uh, are, are there to aid them, not to take their place, right. not to co-opt right. them, um, then uh, the... The, that's really how uh, cultures are renewed. You know, we have this top-down view, which is important, and uh, I'm not going to undermine that, but I've stayed in the paper. What if 5% of uh, families undertook this authority to govern their own children, um, to govern their education, their religion, their upbringing, and informed uh the school informed the church, informed the employer, informed their, uh, you know, voluntary associations that um, these were now their priorities. And if I need help, I appreciate your availability. <laughs> uh, you would have, you would have quite, quite a uh, significant change. Right. Powerful. Well, tell me how our listeners can support you or learn more about your work. Well, we um, at the Lonang Institute, you know, do accept contributions. And if you are interested, you can go to lonang.com, L-O-N-A-N-G.com. And there's a uh, donate button that you can click to. Uh, we'd also really appreciate your prayers for what we're doing and writing. A lot of it is extremely controversial. Um, we filed several briefs in the United States Supreme Court attempting to bring the law of nature to light as applied to modern legal disputes and um, are somewhat alone in that area, though that's just fine with me. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, But there's a lot of challenges ahead, and uh, I think people need to think uh, that, you know, uh, lawyers are, are worthy of their prayers as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, Jesus' approach to lawyers, which was 
you know, you whitewashed sepulchers. So uh, <laughs> there's probably a place for that, but we're hoping for the better. <laughs> What a joy to have you on the show today. We definitely have to have you back and keep us posted on what's happening in your realm. Thank you, Mr. Morgan. All right. Well, thank you. We all know that traditional education is broken beyond repair. And instead of training up joyful, creative, faith-filled scholars, our government education system is churning out atheist armies. This is the most anxious, depressed atheist generation in the history of our nation. And our educational and spiritual ecosystem must be radically changed for the physical, mental, and spiritual health of our youngest citizens. Our local answer to the global crisis is Chula Vista Christian University. And I'm calling on churches across the United States to be part of the solution. Pastors go to the Academic Rescue Mission at academicrescuemission.com, that's ARM, to arm your congregation against pagan indoctrination. Don't forget to check out my latest book, Outsourced, Why America's Kids Need an Education Revolution. You can find all our blogs, books, podcasts, and other information on the homepage at cbcu.us. Again, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining us on today's show. I'll be back next week with more tips and tools of the trade. We'll see you then. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Nunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.